So what's your mind set on? We started this little series last week, and uh, we, we looked at a couple different <clears throat> aspects of it as far as introducing this text to our hearts. And I just want to read uh, a section of this this morning, just two verses, and then we'll uh, delve into a little review and then uh, get into the text, and then we'll have our communion time. Um, Verse 5 of Romans 8 said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Um, Last week we introduced this little section of Scripture and we talked about the idea of, of what do you desire. Uh, that word setting the mind there uh, has to deal with what you dwell on, what a person's disposition is bent toward, what occupies the desires of your hearts. Um, and it's really referring to what occupies a person's mind. And we looked at how last week your mindset really determines how you act. It motivates you and what you do, what you say, what you feel. It determines how you'll allow others to influence your life. Um, it decides what you will choose as a source of knowledge. It affects your view of every experience you have. It shapes your value system. It dominates your private and public life. And uh, we talked about the idea that the more you become the more you desire something, the more you become like that. Uh, what you love, you think about, and what you think about, you do, because what you think about is who you are. And we need to be reminded of that um, today. You know, Solomon said in Proverbs 23, verse 7, for as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And I think it's very important that as Christians we, we understand not only what has been done for us through the sacrifice of Christ as we celebrate communion time today, but also who we are in Christ and uh, what that means, how that plays itself out. Last week I looked at over at Romans or John chapter 8. I had you turn there. We're not going to turn there this morning, but it talks about this situation where this woman who was accused of adultery and, and they were ready to stone her and, and Jesus basically uh, stepped in and and uh, they wanted to ask him a question. Is this the right thing to do? And uh, they thought they had him trapped. And his response to her was, where are those who condemn you? And she looked around and there was no one there because Jesus held them to account. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. And that's really a picture of who we are in Christ. It means that that God has saved us, is saving us, and you know what? It's because of His grace, it's because of His mercy, it's because of His sacrifice. It's not something that we do. It's not something that the law, by keeping the law, you could do on your own. And we talked a little bit about the teaching that justification and sanctification have to go together. The idea that God justifies you, that He declares you righteous, And also the idea that God is continually making us holy, making us more like Christ. They go together. You can't have one without the other. If you're not justified before God, you can try to be holy all you want. The fact is you're not. And if you're justified, then you better see some form of sanctification, some form of God working in your life. Or you're not justified. Um. And so Jesus made that very clear, and it's important because in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul starts out, he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about the idea that, you know what, that's a wonderful truth. And that's purely because of God's grace and Christ's sacrifice. But let us never forget the idea that God still desires us to be holy as his people. Just because our sins are forgiven doesn't mean that we can live however we want. And we talked about four important truths last week. First of all, holiness is justification's goal. The whole reason God declares you righteous 
is that so you will live in a holy manner. That's the goal. And then secondly, we looked at holiness consists in fulfilling the law's just demands. In other words, it's, it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to live like you're saved. And that's evidence of our salvation. And holiness is able to, because we're made holy by God, and when we live accordingly, we fulfill all that God calls us to fulfill. And then thirdly, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is not something you can manufacture. You can't wake up and say, I'm going to live a holy day today. I'm going to be totally holy today. You won't go very far without the Spirit's help. And then the last thing we looked at was holiness is mandatory. This isn't optional. This isn't something that you you get to sign up for after your salvation, after you've experienced salvation. No, this is something that God demands of his church, that it be holy, that it be separate, that it be solely sold out for him. Well, what does that say about us? All that information that we looked at last week, what does that say about the state of Christianity in the United States in which we find ourselves? If holiness is necessary, and it is, how do we account for all the unholiness by alleged Christian people in their churches? You read about it all the time. George Gollop, the founder of the president of the American Institution of Public Opinion, always does these polls, and he asked several years ago certain questions. He had been struck by this, that nearly half of all Americans can be found in a place of worship on a given Sunday. This is what he is saying. And that high percentages have high levels of conservative religious belief. And according to his poll, here's what he found. 81% of Americans claim to be religious. He said that places him only... Second to Italians, whose rating is 83%. 95 Americans say they believe in God. 71 believe in life after death. 84 believe in heaven. 67 believe in, 67% believe in hell. There's a large majority of these, those who were polled, who said that they believe in the Ten Commandments. When polled, he said nearly every home has at least one Bible. Half of Americans can be found in church on an average Sunday morning. This is what he was saying. He said 8% say they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. One-fourth claimed to lead a very Christian life. Now you stop and you look at those numbers. How can 95% say they believe in God And four out of five say they are religious. But only one in five says that religion is the most important factor in their life. Most want some kind of religious instruction for their children, but religious faith ranks far below other traits parents would like to see developed in their children. Only one in eight says that he or she would consider sacrificing everything for God or their religious beliefs. And he records this. He says, I saw a glaring lack of knowledge of the Ten Commandments, even by those who say they believe in them. He says that there's a a very high level of lack of spiritual discipline. Now, when you look at that and you wonder what is going on, he says that 50 to 60 million claim to be born again. There's another study out, and it it talks about seven startling facts, an up-close look at church attendance in America. And this poll said this, less than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. That seems more realistic to me. That American church attendance is steadily declining. You can look this up on the internet. I'm not going to share all the numbers with you. There's only one state in our union, in our country, that's outpacing 
its population growth. You know what state it is? Hawaii. Hawaii. It says, Hawaii, where 13.8% of the state's population, that's 1.3, regularly attend church. And that was the only state where church attendance grew faster than its population from 2000 to 2014. Um, this same study predicts that by the year 2050, 2050, the percentage of the U.S. population attending church will be almost half of what it is in 1990. They say it's estimated to drop from 20.4% to 11.7%. And you say, well, what's that matter? What does this suggest? It suggests that there are, are, are many who consider themselves Christians even in the so-called evangelical churches today. But apparently, they're not. They may profess the right things. They may say the right things. They may lead acceptable lives. But they're not on the right path. They don't follow hard after holiness. They're not born again. And I think it's time in America that somehow we need to discern this fact and have a true revival in our churches. You know, revival, if you study revival in history, it always has basically three characteristics. First, the first stage is an awakening. You've heard of the Great Awakening, right? Or wonderful American revivals under the preaching of the likes of Jonathan Edwards. William Tennant, George Whitfield. It was called the Great Awakening because it, it awoken the human heart. It awoke the human heart to the spiritual reality of its condition. But after an awakening, the second stage is revival itself, which meant the coming of spiritual life into these people who are professing Christ. See, we found out last week, it's not enough just to say, oh, Jesus is Lord. There's going to be people that stand before him, Matthew 7, and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And he's going to say, sorry, I don't even know who you are. Never knew you. So you have an awakening. You also have revival. And then the final phase of of true revival and awakening is an impact on society. And you see that throughout history when you study revivals. I would say we live in a day and age where we need such a revival in our day and age. I mean, without God's direct intervention in our country, I don't know what's going to happen. We have to awaken people to the condition of their souls. And that means church people, that means religious people, just as much as it means those who never would dare to walk in a church. And see, when we get to Romans 8, 5 and 6, he makes it very, very clear that, you know what, there's only two groups of people in this world. There's only two groups. And he points that out to us. And so we're getting to this section where... Paul clearly says that there's only two groups of people with two different destinies. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you're on the destiny according to the Spirit, not the flesh. Now, when our text in Romans 8 talks about phrases like according to the flesh and according to the Spirit... It's basically talking about people who determine their, their behavior is determined by their spiritual condition. So this isn't talking about when he talks about those who live according to the flesh. He's not talking about Christians. He's talking about non-believers. 
Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh are those who are outside of Christ. Those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit are those who are believers, those who have been saved. And that's very important to understand because today in our church, because it's so steeped in sin, a lot of theologians say, well, you know, you can be a Christian and just live in an unholy way. Because, you know, Jesus is your Savior. He may not be your Lord, but he's your Savior. Have you ever heard that? That's a damning doctrine. That's a doctrine that's not found in the Scriptures. Jesus never taught that. Jesus never said to the woman at the well, okay, you know what, I'm not going to condemn you and go live however you want. (laughs) He He didn't say that to her. He said, no, neither do I condemn you. Now go and what? Sin no more. See, when Christ comes into our life, beloved, there should be a transformation. There should be a change. And that change should should be radical. I mean, if someone's dead, steeped in their sin, and they're transformed from that deadness into life, I don't know about you, but that would be a pretty radical change. I remember being on a call out of a just a few-week-old baby that passed. And I remember getting to the apartment, and it's all in disarray, and it wasn't the best living conditions, and trying to deal with the family, and they're all distraught, and the baby was in on the bed, and we couldn't let them go see the baby because the coroner hadn't come, and the investigators weren't done yet, and they couldn't understand that, so I was trying to calm them down. It probably took about an hour and a half before the mother could go in and hold her baby. And I remember watching that mom as she held that baby close to her chest and just shook it like this and said, just wake up. I know you're, just wake up. She probably did that for five, ten minutes. She wanted that baby to do something it could not do because its life was no more. It was dead. And we have to remind ourselves that that people who are living according to the flesh are dead spiritually. They're dead. So we don't need to go out there and give them a bunch of rules to live by. That's not going to help them. You know, there are churches that do that. Oh, you want to come to our church? Well, you got to do this, you got to do that, and you dress this way, you got to do that. You you know, I went to a church one time, they had a barber shop. They had a barber shop in their lobby. If you were a man and your hair was over your ears, they made no bones about it. They said, before you come in the sanctuary, you got to go to that barber shop. No lie. And ladies, lest you get off the hook, they also had a dress shop. If you're a woman who had pants on, you're not coming in their sanctuary. You go over there and you see so-and-so, and she'll fix you right up. She'll give you a dress. Bizarre, to say the least. Now, we should dress appropriately for church. I mean, obviously. I mean, we should, you know, want to do the best, wear the best we have for the Lord and, and, and all that. I get that. Let's not dictate to someone who's not a Christian how they should live. Because they're, they're dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sin, just like we once were. And so the only thing that will move them from that deadness is life. And just as if that little baby all of a sudden would have started crying and breathing again, That would have been a transformation. That would have been something that would have blown everybody in that building away. Why? Because it would have been a miracle. Because the baby was dead. That's how it is when we come to Christ. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. It shouldn't be just something that we add Jesus to our life or now we go to church once a week or now we carry a Bible around. No, we should see a radical transformation. In every aspect of our life. 
And then you can say, wow, I've been saved. I've been born again. I'm a new person in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, there's not some third category where you kind of got your foot halfway in and halfway out. As a Christian, the Bible says that, you know what? Either you love God and hate the world, or you love the world and you hate God. It doesn't give us any other option. So the first point here in the outline is simply this. There are two and only two groups of people in the world. Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. That's what it says in Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. He's not writing about two kinds of Christians. He's writing about a Christian and a non-Christian. He's writing about someone who's been saved and someone who hasn't. Whenever you see the word in the flesh or according to the flesh, it's not referring to a believer. It's always referring to a non-believer. It describes the spiritual condition of unbelievers. They're characterized by what? Verse 6 says, those who live according uh, to the flesh basically are subject to death. But those who live according to the Spirit, their lives are characterized in verse 6 by what? Life and peace, it says. See, the nature of each group determines their present behavior. Don't ever get that backwards. Don't think, well, your behavior determines which group you're in. No. That's what we like to think sometimes. But that's not the case. You know, there's a popular thing going around that there's kind of two, two tracks as a Christian that you can take once you get saved. The first track is kind of the discipleship track. You know, you're going to be a disciple of Christ. And under that plan, you have to give up everything to follow Christ. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross daily. You have to suffer hardship and sacrifice and perhaps even martyrdom. You have to give Christ control of everything that you have, all your material assets. You may even be required to take the gospel to a foreign land or foreign culture where you'll live in difficult maybe even dangerous circumstances. But you know what? If you take that track, the good thing is that when you get to heaven, your rewards will be great. But that discipleship track is only for the super committed, they say. The other track, I'll call it the cultural Christian track. And that's for the rest of us who just want to be ordinary believers. We don't want to have this radical stuff. Under this plan, you can accept Jesus as your Savior to make sure that you'll go to heaven. But you can also pursue all your dreams and your passions and your your personal fulfillment in this life. You kind of get the the best of both worlds without needing to be gung-ho like all those on the discipleship track. You can enjoy fellowship in a good evangelical church. And yet you can still pursue the American dream at the same time. You know, just drop something in the offering plate when it passes. Pay your dues. Once in a while you can even volunteer certain ministries to help out the church. Of course, when it doesn't conflict with your busy schedule. And don't be too hard on yourself about being obedient to what God tells you to do in His Word, the Bible. After all, we're all human. God is gracious. He understands your weaknesses. So just accept yourself and don't think that you have to be all out for Jesus. That's just for those fanatics on the discipleship track. But beloved, Jesus made it very clear. Mark 8 34 and 38, it says that he, as he summoned the crowd with his disciples, notice it's not just his disciples. He summoned the crowd with his disciples. 
This message was to everybody. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I like that phrase there that he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. That's us. That's the generation we live in. An adulterous and sinful generation. And it's time the church stopped being muffled and, and, and stifled and put to the side. And it's time we stood up and spoke the truth in love, but spoke the truth in this adulterous and sinful nature uh, generation. Spoke to one pastor recently, and he said, "Wow, you know, kind of got yourself in hot water." I said, "Well, I, I don't know about that, but uh, he said, "Yeah." He goes, "You know, I basically agreed." With everything you, you said in that, that prayer you prayed, but, uh, you know, I, I saved that for the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And my response was simply, so you, 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 you basically preached to the choir. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, uh, well, yeah, that's what you're telling me. The people that really need to hear the message of the truth, you're, you're going to water it down and you're going to dumb it down so really it has no effect on them because, God forbid, you should offend anybody. See, there's only two groups here, beloved. One that's saved, one that's not. One that's in the flesh, one that's in the spirit. One that's going to go on they're both going on to eternal life, one that's going to go on to eternal life in heaven, and one that's going to go on to eternal life in hell. Secondly, these two groups are sharply distinguished by different mindsets. Say, well, how do you know what group? Paul describes the mindset of those who are according to the flesh as the things of the flesh. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, the mindset is a mindset of death. Verse 7, they're hostile toward God. They're not subject to God's law. Verse 8, they're not pleasing to God. On the other hand, the mindset of those who are according to the Spirit, those who are saved, those who have been forgiven by the grace of work of Christ, is a life of life and peace, it says. And also, you could go on by implication and say that it's a friend of God. That it's subject to his law. That it's pleasing to God. See, to be according to the flesh means to live under the flesh. To make it your rule. To make it your master. To make it something you obey. And to live according to the Spirit means just that. Means to be ruled, to be determined by His awakening, regenerating, illuminating presence characterized by the fact that He dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at these two. The first one, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, it says there in verse 5. You know, the word flesh is not necessarily a bad word doesn't have to be a bad word. It always depends on the context in which flesh is used. Sarks in the Greek. It depends on how it's used. It may refer to our human bodies with no moral indicators at all. 2 Corinthians 10.3. Paul writes this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
He's just saying, you know what? We walk in, in, in our bodies. We're in our bodies. There's nothing wrong with that. Or Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, what's he say? In the flesh. Well, what's the context talking about? He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So in that context, in 2.20, in the flesh, that word flesh just means, you know what, I'm in the body. doesn't mean it's bad. It's all about context. Or over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. That's the same word, sarx. It's, it's a fleshly ailment. He had something wrong with his body. So it could just refer to our body, our fleshly body, without meaning all the, the connotations of sin. Just kind of a neutral term. Well, secondly, it also may refer to the weakness of human life as being something that's temporary. First uh, Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. So in that text, it's just kind of referring to the idea that, 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 that Jesus' body on the, 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 the tree, it was, it was, you know, his body was weak at that point. He gave it up. Or over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, it may mean this. It may refer to the sinfulness of human nature after the fall. That's what Paul refers to there in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify what? The desires of the flesh. Well, in that text, what's he talking about? He's talking about sin. For the desires of the flesh, he says, are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then he says, if you're interested, now the works of the flesh are the evident. It's something that can be clearly seen. What are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. Why do you say that? Because you might look at that list and go, oh, my sin's not listed there. I guess I'm okay. No, things like that. He doesn't leave anybody off the hook. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things or practice such things, is a better rendering there, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he covers the whole gamut. Paul makes it clear that according to the flesh has to do with our mindset, how we think. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this in one of his commentaries. He says, The term includes not only thought and understanding, it includes affections, emotions, desires, and the objects of pursuit. See, non-Christians set their minds on the things of the flesh. It doesn't mean that they just occasionally do it. It means that's all they know. They're continually driven by the flesh. And as I referred to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, the beloved apostle writes this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So loving the world or setting one's mind on the, the things of the flesh means to live for the temporary things in life. Something that the world values and basically disregard God and disregard all of eternity. So that's those who live according to the flesh. Look at the second group, those who live, set their mind on the spirit. 
The things of the Spirit are the truths that are revealed in God's Word. That's what that means when it talks about the things of the Spirit. It's talking about God's Word. It's talking about who He is. It's talking about who we are in Christ. It's talking about that wonderful, great salvation that Christ provided for us through His work on the cross. And it talks about how we should live in light of our salvation. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. See, when we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, it does not mean that you go around with your head up in the clouds. It doesn't mean, you know, I've heard some people say, oh, that guy's so, got his mind on heaven so much, he's no earthly good. It doesn't mean you have to go join a monastery somewhere and spend hours every day prostrate on the floor in meditation and prayer. It doesn't mean that at times you don't get your hands dirty with the mundane things of work and paying bills and cleaning the house and fixing meals and mowing your lawn, maybe reading the newspaper. See, that's not, those aren't indicators of someone who's spiritual, people that don't do those things. Oh, I just, I just pray all day. Rather, <clears throat> to set... Your mind on the things of the Spirit means to relate all of life, all of life, to God and His Word. It's kind of like a filter. It's kind of like a filter. You're passing everything through this filter. What's the filter? God's Word and God's Spirit. God has seen fit in His Word to tell us how to have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is the most important truth that one can understand. That's why something like this conference we're doing this coming weekend is so important. Because today people are timid. They're, they're weak in the idea of sharing their faith. Because we live in a cultural that, culture that it, it, it doesn't appreciate it. And so we just kind of relegate all our spiritual activity to this place, you know, four walls. And, and then, you know, when we get out in the world, well, you can't expect me to share, share my faith out there. Well, this conference will give you the ability to do that. But understanding and sharing the gospel is, is a very important thing because you know what? Any of us could die at any moment. Any moment. And the moment you die begins eternity for you. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, he says where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, he says, on the things above, not on the things of the earth. 
Why, Paul? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, he says. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So he says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And what's that mean? That, that indicates that you know, you're, you're thinking about salvation a lot. You're thinking about matters of salvation a lot. When you have a, a neighbor, you're, you're wondering about their salvation. You're looking for ways to share Christ with them. It also means to worship God and to commune with Him. I mean, the Bible tells us a lot of information, beloved. It tells us a lot of practical things. It tells us a lot of down-to-earth things. In the context even of Colossians chapter 3, Paul goes on to talk about things like sex and greed and anger and abuse of speech and truthfulness. He gives practical commands regarding relationships and marriage and child-rearing and work. Those are all very real things that we all have in our lives. In other places, the Bible tells us how to manage money, how to deal with trials, how to relate to civil authorities. A lot of different practical things are covered in the Bible. So to repeat, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit means to relate all of life to God and His Word. And you know what? At the heart of that process is really how you think. It's how you think. When he says there the mind is set, that Greek word, it occurs only here in Romans 8. Phonema. And one commentator points out that there can be no such thing as neutral thinking. We're always aiming at something. He adds this. This passage makes it abundantly clear that the way one thinks is intimately related to the way one lives, whether in Christ, in the Spirit, and by faith, or alternatively, in the flesh, in sin, and in spiritual death. A man's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his life. The latter will be reflected in the aims which he sets himself. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul commands us to set our minds on the things above. But in Romans chapter 8, he describes believers as those who have set their minds on things of the Spirit. Now, obviously, it's a lifelong process involving growth, involving maturing process. But in all honesty, we need to ask the question here this morning, does this describe me? Do I set my mind on the things of the Spirit? Or do I set my mind on the things of the flesh? Which direction am I heading? It's not hard to figure out. I'll give you a clue. If you spend more of your spare time watching television or playing video games or on your computer, then you do spending reading God's Word, reading Christian books, fellowshipping with other believers, or serving the Lord in some capacity, you're probably not heading in the right direction. Now, we all need spare time, and we all need downtime, and we all have activities that we do just to kind of relax. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, that's a good thing. But if we're not making a concerted, consistent effort to develop a biblical mindset... Something's wrong. Something's off. Something's not adding up. There are only two, in, two groups of people in the world, unbelievers who live under the domination of the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh, and believers who live under the domination of the Holy Spirit and set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The third thing here, quickly, these two distinct groups are marked by the mindsets that lead to completely different destinies. And this is so important. Death or life in peace. That's what he says in Romans 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life in peace. See, Paul is describing here the current spiritual state of each group. That's why he uses the word for there in verse 6. 
The first group sets their minds on the things of the flesh. The second group sets their minds on the things of the spirit. The first group is dominated by the flesh, where it results in spiritual death. The second group is dominated by the spirit, which results in life and peace with God. The scary part is this. If those who are dead in their sins continue in that state until they die physically, they will, throughout all eternity, continue in that awful condition of separation from God under the penalty of his just wrath. The Bible calls that the second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, says that it's spent in a place called the lake of fire, hell. In the very next verse, verse 15, John writes this, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, that's the state of eternal spiritual death. That doesn't mean that you're just going to go there and burn up. It's all going to be over. No, the body does not burn or decay. It's there for all eternity. If it just burned up, that would be kind of a blessing, to be honest. But it doesn't. It's a continuous, enduring, conscious torment forever and ever and ever. And those truths come from Jesus himself. And if we reject that truth, we're not following Christ. The good news is this, as we prepare our hearts for communion. communion, If you have been given new life through the Holy Spirit, although your physical body will die, the the Word of God says in Romans 8.10, God will resurrect your body, verse 11. And then you'll enjoy life and peace with him and with all the saints throughout all eternity. The moment your physical body dies as a believer, your spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, death is not ever a, a pretty picture. Morticians try to do their best, but we know when we go to a funeral, we're looking at a dead body. Death is a spiritual picture of all those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And that's Ephesians 2.1. Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He repeats it in chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive. With Christ. You know, by the world's standards, even the unbeliever may be a good person. He may give generously to charity. He may devote himself to good deeds. But listen, if he's not been born again, through the life-giving spirit, he is spiritually dead, the Bible says. But the one who has been born again has life and peace. And that life called eternal life, because it's indestructible. It can't be taken away by any evil force. Read the end of Romans 8. It joins us in a living union with Jesus Christ, who once and for all, beloved, through his sacrifice on the cross, conquered death, and he lives and he reigns forevermore. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The application here is obvious. Basically, it's this. Make sure that you have new life through God's Spirit and that you are not living according to the flesh. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that, you know, I'm one of those worldly or carnal Christians. But I'm going to heaven because I prayed a prayer one day and asked Jesus into my heart. The issue is this. Do you have life and peace with God through the Spirit? Do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? If not, you need to repent. You need to cry out to God to give you new life. And if you're sure that you've been born again, if you're sure that you are a believer here today, but you find yourself drifting into things of the flesh and of the world The solution is the same. Repent. 
Don't rest until your mind and your focus are on the things of the Spirit. Sit down. Evaluate your schedule. I was going to do this illustration. It just would take way too much time. And so I just said, I'll just explain it to you. I'm sure you've seen it many times. Do you remember the big rocks illustration? The professor comes out with a large jar filled to the brim with big rocks inside. And he asks the class, is the jar full? And they all say, oh, yes, it looks full to us. Then he takes a cup of pea gravel and he pours it into the jar. It just filters down. He says, do you think it's full now? Of course, they knew what was coming, so they didn't answer him. He takes out a cup of sand and he pours it into the jar and it fills the rest of the space. And he holds it up. He says, do you think it's full now? And then he takes a glass of water and he pours it into the jar. All those things went into that jar. But you know what? If you were to put all those things before those big rocks into the jar, the big rocks would not fit. And you say, well, what's the point? The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you won't be able to fit them in at all. What am I saying? One of the big rocks in life is, what are you going to do with Christ? Where is your spiritual walk with Christ? We need to schedule our priorities in light of God and God's word. Or you know what? They're going to get crowded out very quickly, the spiritual priorities. They're going to get crowded out by the urgent, by the trivial. The biggest rock you have, beloved, is your relationship with God. I want to encourage you this morning to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we've been able to share as the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue your work through your Spirit as we come to this communion table, as we desire to examine ourselves as we're instructed to in the Bible as believers. This table is for believers, those who put their faith, their trust in Christ. And Lord, we come to this table not as a tradition, but as a celebration. A celebration of your death and resurrection. A celebration of the gift of salvation that you gave to us through your sacrifice. We do it out of obedience to your word. You said in your word that we should do this as often as we, we can to remember all that you've done on our, our behalf. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to examine our own hearts, that we would have a clear conscience before you, before others, before we would partake of this communion table. Lord, I ask that you would work in a, in a mighty way for those who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that today might just be that day that they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. It's an acknowledgement of dependence upon you, the Creator, the God who gave us life, and your provision of salvation through Christ. That's a prayer he'll answer today. Be merciful to me, a sinner. So, Lord, I pray you bless our communion time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.